Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Navy SEAL Jocko Willink said, leadership requires belief in the mission and unyielding perseverance to achieve victory. I wanted to kick this episode off with a Jocko quote, because in today's episode, we're going to be talking to DeLap's own Ryan Boatsman. We're going to talk all things vision, strategy, change management, and organizational health. If you know Ryan Boatsman, you know he's a fan of Jocko. Ryan's been at DeLap for over 17 years, but has spent the last six years as the firm's COO. He's played that role of change agent throughout his entire career. Through both successes and setbacks, Ryan's learned a lot about change, what works, what doesn't, and his commitment to lifelong learning has equipped him to be a true resource to his clients. Outside of the firm, Ryan's leadership extends to the home building industry, where he's spent the vast majority of his career helping home builders make more predictable and profitable financial decisions. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with the lap zone, Ryan Boatsman. All right, Ryan Boatsman, welcome to Success That Last. Excited to have you on the show. We recently read a book together, Getting Naked by Patrick Lencioni. Are you ready to get naked? Sure, let's do this. Let's do this. Hey, so you've been at the lap now for well over 17 years. You're our chief operating officer. You've helped lead the home builder vertical in the past. Just talk to me a little bit about kind of what what were the decisions that led you to public accounting and, and ultimately to DeLap 17 years ago? Yeah. So my dad is a CPA. So kind of grew up in the household of tax season, busy season, kind of the rhythm of that career path. and. Growing up, I just kind of saw myself as that would be a, a great profession to to get in. I think, although my dad did have stressful times, he thoroughly seems to enjoy his work to this day. He says, you know, I'll retire once my clients tell me I need to, like he wants to keep going. And just kind of getting through high school and college, understanding that it's accounting in general is not for everyone. So there's not a lot of people that like to get into it. So I figured, you know, supply and demand would be in my favor with that. So, so yeah, just got into public accounting kind of that way. So in college, though, you also juggled public accounting and a college experience with, with football. You were a linebacker for Linfield and Linfield is national contender with, within their their division. So talk to me a little bit about time management. Like how do you juggle? What was, I guess, that experience like and how does, how's it benefited you today? Yeah. I mean, it was awesome, awesome experience. 
playing small college football. You know, you're with your buddies, you're living with teammates, and you don't have too much time to goof off, which I like. You can't you can't get too much trouble because yeah, I mean, football was almost an eight hour a day job, and then putting academics and social um, in there as well. Uh, you you had to you had to be pretty good at time management, but I think it really helped me kind of provide structure to my day and you know being part of that Linfield football family just also provided a lot of that structure I felt like it was you know the best classroom I had at Linfield just being able to deal with difficult situations persevere through them the camaraderie the feeling of winning just a lot of it's a very emotional game so you get to to figure out how to manage those emotions in the moment while trying to still execute. That was a big difference for me in between high school and college is in high school. I mean, playing defense, we only had probably four or five different coverages and I could just get super amped up and just go out and just play. But, you know, getting into college ball, you know, my playbook was about uh, 150 pages long so and within every play could audible multiple times so I couldn't just be like super amped up you have to be able to actually think yeah and so kind of balancing those emotions of staying focused yet still being amped up to play a pretty pretty physical game and now Delap has an office linebacker what a blessing that's right yeah, that's right. As a as a college kicker, my my playbook was pretty simple. Just it seemed like most games it was be between the pipes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but you got to hit game winners, so you know, always be the guy carried off the field every now and then, right? Uh, that was one of the possible outcomes. There were other outcomes too. <laughs> or you're just shunned for the next shunned. week. Well, actually, so that transitions really well into. My next kind of quote slash question. I read a book by Maria Konnikova. She's a uh, a journalist that wanted to try to learn how to play poker at a competitive global level. And so she spent like 18 months working with some of the top minds in poker around kind of behavioral finance, essentially how to better understand the odds of a decision and quieting your emotions and playing. I'm not an avid poker player, but one of the things that's interesting is you can make a bad decision that works out well, or you can make the right decision that doesn't. And so bifurcating the decision-making process from the outcome was one of the skills that she had to develop. But in the book, she has this quote, the benefit of failure is an objective and objectivity that success simply can't offer. And she was talking about the redeeming quality of all of her attempted efforts and failures over that 18-month process and how learning as a, as you know, in a profession or learning as, you know, as you get older often looks like failure. And so I was just kind of curious what role failure has played in your professional development since being here at the firm's the last 17 years. Yeah. I mean, uh, failure is one of the, the best ways to learn. The bigger the failure, the more you learn and you don't want to repeat those mistakes, but it's a lot of it's balancing balancing kind of getting down on yourself when there's a failure and then also looking at it as an opportunity to learn and like you talk about emotions like sometimes those 
can get mixed up, but it's just trying to calm down from that situation and then look at the good side of it. And then kind of going back to football, it's kind of just flush it. That was kind of our, our lingo was just, Hey, that play happened, flush it on to the next play. So learn from that mistake, flush it and then move on. And so, yeah, I've had, I've had multiple failures along my career path and actually most recently was able to had a zoom call with some of our newer hires and, you know, they were asking, you know, Hey, what was it like when, when you first came to the lab and you knew nothing and like, how did you, you know, what were some trip ups you've had? And so one example was, you know, when I first started, I was doing a lot of tax returns as well as some audits and reviews. And so it was kind of a, I was an auditor by day. And then at night I would come back to the office and, and crank out some tax returns. And I was probably, that was probably about two months. I just kept prepping these tax returns and sending them to review. Didn't really know who was reviewing them. It's kind of a shelf. I just kind of put it on and some manager or partner would grab it and review it. And for literally two months, I didn't get any feedback back. So I thought I was riding high. I was like, man, I guess I know what I'm doing. No one's really coming back and telling me. You assumed 100%. <laughs> I assumed I'm crushing Must it. be crushing it. Then one day I got an email from one of our tax managers, kind of an up and coming uh, younger manager. And she gave me about a three-page email of every mistake I made on that tax return. And I was a little shocked. I was like, oh, okay, I got a few things to learn here. And as I'm reading the email, I'm recognizing I've made those mistakes on every single tax return I prepared over the last two months. And so then that kind of feeling of like shame almost hit me and like, oh my gosh, like now everyone thinks I'm just dumb. Like no one has come back and, and told me hey, you need to fix this and this and this. So that kind of hit me hard. And so trying to deal with those emotions of like, oh, geez, I need to go apologize to everyone or why wasn't I receiving this feedback? But it was a very valuable tool and lesson for me to not assume that you're crushing it, right? Like go seek feedback. Even if you're thinking you're doing a great job or even if you think you're doing a bad job, it doesn't matter. Like just assuming can get you in trouble as well. So, you know, it was helpful. I was able to use that email as kind of my checklist from there on out in terms of, hey, I don't want to make these mistakes again. So that's also a, was a valuable tool and lesson to learn is, hey, when you do make mistakes, hey, it's, it's even good to, to take notes or keep, keep notes others have given you to just constantly remind yourself. Absolutely. I want to shift our conversation now a little bit to strategic planning. You kind of have the opportunity of playing a dual threat here because for 17 years, you've helped clients extract actionable information from their financials and kind of create strategy from that. And simultaneously within our own organization as the chief operating officer have really been a strategic rudder in establishing the, the direction of where the firm is, is going. And so I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of strategy, what your general observations have been around it, both in your efforts externally as well as internally, because, you know, there's the, the godfather of strategy for many is the Harvard professor, Michael Porter, and he describes it 
essentially is the essence of strategy is choosing what not to do. I mean, so you're distilling this rather large topic into something really similar or simplified, I guess, as to what do you say no to? So I guess, talk to me a little bit about strategy. How do you think about it? You know, what have you learned, I guess, about this nebulous topic of strategy in your efforts externally, as well as within our own firm? Yeah, so so for some insight, my personality type, I'm an INTJ. So that's, you know, they, they label that profile as an architect, so a planner. Like, that just comes naturally to me. I like to plan into the future. Um, people joke I already have the next 60 years of my life planned out, which might be pretty true. But it's really kind of, for me, it's looking into the future and seeing what is it that we want to accomplish and trying to, you know, kind of use that tool, the now, where, how is, is, is trying to say, okay, here's where we are now, but then cast to the future, say, where do we want to be? And then filling in the blank is obviously the implementation process of how do we get there? Early on, I really enjoy strategic planning and could just kind of get in my shell and brainstorm and kind of plot out strategy, which make, made sound sense to me. What I have found more difficult is trying to connect dots and communicate to a team because sometimes they've got a different vision or see strategy differently. And then you're dealing with all the dynamics of, you know, change management and how do you get everyone on board, especially in environments where, in organizations where you're already doing well, right? You're already, you know, making good profit. Culture seems high. So to some degree, people in organization might say, hey, why fix what's not broken? Absolutely. And (laughs) it's counterintuitive, I think, to voluntarily disrupt yourself before the marketplace does. And certainly, I think probably the most difficult thing in business, I think, is change management. Prior episodes of the show, we've talked about the neuroscience and your brain actually responds to uninvited change the same way it would respond to pain. And so the saying that change is pain is true from a neuroscience perspective. Our biology doesn't voluntarily accept it. So yeah, change management is challenging. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the initiatives that that we're doing internally right now to support change management and organizational health here momentarily. But I guess VisionCast for me, what you have outlined in DELAP's strategic plan for Vision 2025 and, and what the partnership has agreed to. I guess, how does DELAP look different in 2025 and kind of behind the scenes, what are we attempting to do from a strategic planning perspective? Yeah, I mean, in terms of where we need to head, we're also stuck in what I was just explaining. Like things are going well. I mean, we're in COVID that, that creates its own challenges, but even through that, we've been very blessed with amazing clients and amazing teammates and things are going well. But as as we look to the future and as things become more complex in 
in the world and in the economy, we have to further define our value proposition to the marketplace. At some point, AI and other technologies will begin to replace some of the work that many professions do. So it's kind of looking at we prepare a tax return or do other compliance work such as audits and reviews and other things, there can be some of that that will be automated in the future. So it's trying to say, okay, what is it as humans that we can do better? And in order for us to really look at those things, we need to start specializing more into industries. So, and for us, we're actually going beyond just industry, but actually going down to sub-industries. So taking home building, for example, home building is in the construction industry, but the construction industry is so broad. I mean, you have road builders, bridge builders, specialty contractors, home builders, commercial builders. It's a massive industry. So for us, if we can narrow our focus and try to play in a sandbox that is smaller, we believe we can become way more specialized and bring way more value to those niche industries. So for home builders, for example, if we're able to, as we have been able to develop a team that works primarily with home builders, it becomes almost intuitive in terms of similar challenges they face, similar opportunities that they have, similar business models and strategies. And they they work together. It's a competitive environment, but a friendly competitive environment. And so it's just understanding, you know, the needs of our clients at a deeper level so that we can come in and provide more value. So as I see the lap evolving through the next five years, it's really honing in on our sub-industries and then providing and creating service lines that are above and beyond just a tax return and a financial statement audit or review or compilation and bringing more advisory work, wealth management, cybersecurity, and tax strategies, and just really whatever it takes to bring value and help our clients win. Yeah, it's been fun to watch us implement this. There's an interesting kind of dynamic that as you increase your focus, right? And so you limit the types of clients that a particular team might work with, though you're becoming more specialized, simultaneously you're becoming more more diverse, right? Because all of a sudden now the scope of conversation that you could have in, in this case, home builders, is expansive from how do I make my business more bankable? How do I manage cash flow? How do I manage risk? How do I tax optimize the revenue that I'm receiving? How do I transfer wealth tax efficiently to the next generation? So though you're becoming more specialized, you're also becoming more more diverse as well. And ultimately, kind of the end product of what you're just talking about is decision support. You're adding clarity and confidence to these decisions. And as the world becomes more complicated, decision support really becomes the product of the organization. So that's exciting. I guess then as we think about now we have this strategy and we're, we're well into getting it implemented, 
We've also started to develop some of our own skill sets around organizational health. And it's informed or inspired by a lot of our experiences firsthand with the Table Group as an organization, as well as a lot of their literature. And the premise there is that nearly every organization is, is smart enough, right, from a financial perspective or marketing perspective or an HR perspective. But it's really organizational health is a differentiator from one team to another. And organizational health is the foundation of it, is building a cohesive team. So I guess, talk to me a little bit about what your experience has been implementing cohesive teams now at various levels across the firm as we kind of reorganize the way that the personnel works together to better support the strategic plan. Yeah, so so we're basically kind of reorganizing our firm into smaller teams as we've been blessed with obtaining new clients and hiring great new teammates. You know, our firm has seen some some substantial growth over the past 5 to 10 years. And through that our our leadership, ultimate leadership group and ownership group, the partner group has has expanded to be a team that is almost too big to really function as one team as 16 or 17 partners. It's just, it's tough for, you know, us to kind of get together as a group and feel like they're being able to share their ideas and execute. And so we kind of started to break it into to smaller teams. And one of them is our sub industry team leaders. So they're going to be in charge of helping specialize in certain sub industries and lead our team in those directions. And we also have our service line leaders, which, you know, we have, we have tax and assurance, wealth management, advisory, and cybersecurity. And so they will, that team will be helping support the sub-industry leaders, provide that value to our clients and kind of be the ones that actually help perform those engagements for our clients. So getting those teams together right now, we're really just focusing on building our team. My first inclination is call to action. What are we going to do? How are we going to get this done? Getting into the logistics. And I've been enlightened reading the table groups and Lencioni's books. That You have to start with the foundation of trust and really build the team first. If you have a truly cohesive team that is completely bought in, you will execute 10x. I mean, it, it'll be an amazing thing to see a true cohesive team. And it's, you know, going back to football, if you can get everyone on the same page, everyone's bought in, everyone accepts their assignments and executes as they should, then the strategy will work. And where you get in trouble is even one person saying, ah, I think I can do it differently, or I don't think the team really knows best. I know best and starts to do their own thing. You know, those cracks can really break momentum in a team. So, you know, I, as you labeled me, the office linebacker, haven't been known as the vulnerability expert at our firm. But no. yeah, but I can confirm that for our listeners. 
he's definitely not the guy that you would think of for the touchy feely stuff. But, you know, understanding the value and our CEO, Earl Pierce has coined the phrase, you know, I'd rather waste two days than two years. So it's, hey, we want to try to, you know, sometimes I might think it's wasting time, but it's really not. And I'm, I'm really getting bought into it. Our teams are getting bought into it. And it's really learning about each other, humanizing ourselves to each other, because I, I see it in, in clients and socially and, and whatnot. We're all broken people. And sometimes we try to put on the facade that we've got it all together and we can keep up with, with everyone, but really we all have our flaws. We all have our strengths. And so it's, you know, in our, in our team building, it's trying to maximize our strengths and understand people's weaknesses and how can we compensate for those so that we can truly be better together than alone. And I think that's, that's what I've seen progress so far. It also allows you, um, as Lincecione says, uh, have healthy conflict because it's not just going to be all kumbaya. We want to get the best from our team, which could create differences of opinion. And we need to flesh those out and make sure we're coming up with what is the best decision for our organization. And until you build that trust with each other, you don't know how to really conflict well or fight fair in another term. So once we get to that point, that's when I think the snowball effect will take place and we'll see some huge momentum. Yeah, that's certainly what I've observed as a participant in this process within our own organization is the phrase surrendering your invulnerability is certainly counterintuitive in a corporate setting. Being vulnerable with a colleague is certainly not the norm in business. And so that building trust, obviously everyone kind of nods their head and says, you know, thank you, Captain Obvious. But Lencioni talks about the difference between predictive trust and vulnerability-based trust. And so once one is willing to surrender their invulnerability, that's the type of trust that he's talking about so that you can have conflict. And conflict in the presence of vulnerability-based trust is really the pursuit of truth. And so that's the platform in which you can extract everyone's best, where the setting then is all of us are stronger than one of us. And you can really, I guess, achieve different outcomes. It's interesting, kind of, you mentioned a point that if I were to walk away from 2020, maybe one of the pillars, kind of the nuggets that for me has been most meaningful is the value of slowing up you know, Amos Traversky was where I first encountered that. Don't you sometimes waste two days to avoid wasting two years? And Traversky was the research partner of Daniel Kahneman, who's the PhD Nobel laureate around, you know, behavioral finance, because the two of them were famous for going on walks and people used to criticize them that they just wasted time. But that unstructured time when they were walking to get away from distractions, it's where their brains freed up and where they all of a sudden had those breakthroughs. And so they had the discipline to say no to urgent things, to create the space for the deep thoughts, the important things. But that's a recurring theme as you kind of look at a variety of different categories. Earlier this year, we had Ken Weigel on, and, and he talked to us about the Patterson planning method that was inspired by Eastern culture that works a lot slower with longer time horizons. And they talk about spiraling the problem. Rather than just solving the problem, they really deconstruct the problem 
And so their orientation to problem solving is slower than that of kind of a Western culture where we just so conquer, you know, ready, shoot, aim. And sometimes that's rewarded. But I guess for me, you know, COVID has slowed things down for me, right? And some of the things that used to be noisy in my life have been eliminated. And so it's created some space for those things, that, that unstructured time. So I guess I've really just appreciated, it wasn't my instinct, but to focus on building the, the team and learning vulnerability and surrendering my own invulnerability has just been really enlightening. And to experience that first person has been one of the more rewarding experiences professionally that I've gotten to, to have. So, so thank you. You mentioned earlier, Ryan, the now, where, how kind of planning framework. You've gone through extensive training. You've used a lot of these tools internally and externally. We'll go ahead and link to the now, where, how tool in the show notes. But are there any other tools or planning frameworks that you've found to be helpful? Kind of the questions to ask yourself or the team that creates clarity? Presumably the right answers preceded by great questions. Yeah, I think one of the tools we used with our team, so we've been a CPA firm for over 80 years, almost 90 years now. And traditionally- We're not not anymore. Now we're an integrated financial services company. Exactly. (laughs) So old habits die hard. We're primarily ran by the traditional tax department and assurance department. And we've kind of added on other service offerings, but mostly focusing on running our firm by the deliverables, right? And as we progress into our strategy for 2025, we'll be running and organizing our firm now by sub-industries. And so it's kind of flipping the way we are organized and how we have operated kind of flips it upside down, which, you know, we talked about change management. It just creates a lot of questions. And even for those that understand that this could happen, you know, as you said, it's change and that triggers certain things in people. So one of the tools we used was as we're communicating this strategy and and getting buy-in is the tool, what's right, wrong, missing, or confused. Because a lot of us who, who love to solve problems always want to figure out what's wrong. We, we want to poke holes and hey, that's not going to work. I think you're looking at that the wrong way, but really trying to say, hey, what's actually right about the plan, right? And then you can focus on, hey, what's wrong? And then kind of dissecting it even more, like what's potentially missing? And then having that moment of what's confused or how is this confusing me? And so it's kind of breaking down the theory down a a bit more into buckets so that we can kind of think of them in separate quadrants so that it's not just because, because typically what you get is what everything that's wrong, Well, let's look at what's right. How can we build upon that? And let's kind of categorize this. So that's been a great tool that we've used in kind of starting this this process. Absolutely. I, I love that tool, kind of the four helpful lists. What I really like about that list is ordinarily it's easy. Like the brain seems to like binary categories, you know, right, wrong. 
but so often wrong is merely something that's either missing or confused. It's disguised. Very rarely is it truly wrong. And what I also loved about doing that exercise as a team was further deconstructing it. To what extent do you have control, right? Am I fully in control of this, partially in control of this, or I have no control? Very rarely do you have no control, right? If something's missing, what's in your control is you could go solicit input. You could go solicit clarity. And I think what's interesting is I'm trying to learn that. It's a concept in, from psychology of locus of control. Some people have an internal locus of control kind of organically. Some have an external locus of control. There's something that I have not yet clarified, but it's easy for all of a sudden to position any sort of adversity as you're a victim. And so there's something uniquely empowering, like when I am stalled out, when I am feeling overwhelmed, when I am feeling frustrated, being shown or, or deconstructing a process like what you just talked about, it's empowering, right? And it shows us how I can positively influence my current situation, which is less than optimal, which psychology research does show us to the extent we believe that we control our current circumstance, it's correlated with happiness. When we feel like we're purely victims of other people's decision, it robs us of happiness. And that's been objectively measured in, in psychology and science. I've loved that tool. So we'll go ahead and link to that one as well in the show notes. So I guess as we kind of, Ryan, transition to putting a bow on the conversation, we'll talk about what I just mentioned there is in happiness. This show was inspired by experiences of watching people accomplish incredible things, but observing responses that wouldn't be have correlated with somebody that felt like they had just won. And so it got me thinking like, well, how we define success will certainly influence today's decisions. Like we'll often mention, mention the quote, don't fear failure, fear success and things that don't matter. Wanted to really unpack this complicated topic of what does success as a business owner, a real estate investor in the, our clientele, what does success look like? And obviously it isn't necessarily a universal truth that's applicable to every single person, but there's underlying nuggets that I think that we can share with our community. So I recently encountered a, a quote while I was reading the book, The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. And he said, when it comes to goal pursuit, and I'm super goal-oriented, you're goal-oriented, business, corporate business is goal-oriented. When it comes to goal pursuit, it's really the journey that counts, not the destination. Set yourself any goal you want, most of the pleasure will be had along the way with every step that takes you closer. So it's really the old adage of it's not the destination, but the journey. And as you read and learn and meet different entrepreneurs, that seems to be the case. I don't think I've learned how to appreciate the journey quite as much as I should, but I want to. I guess I wanted to ask you about the journey. And I'm going to broaden it personally and professionally. I guess, what about the journey do you enjoy the most, you know, as the COO, as a partner at Delap, as the father to three incredible little boys, the husband to a, to a wonderful wife? What parts of the journey bring you the most joy? Yeah, I think the parts that bring me the most joy is just really when people are enjoying what they're doing and and can collectively come together as a and have common goals and watching teamwork the dynamic of teamwork work it's an amazing thing 
and through my journey here, just being able to work with different individuals and just see what are their strengths and how can they be a valuable member to the team and watching, especially some of our newer hires, just those light bulb moments of like, oh yeah, I get this and getting excited with new opportunities that come their way and seeking coaching and mentoring along the way. And that's really what I like is being able to see, you know, not just the team, but also every individual of the team, kind of just how they raise their game. And so that's what I enjoy the most. And also, you know, raising three boys with my wife and both of us working more than full time. You know, that I keep hearing this saying that the, the days are long, but the years are short. Um, as you're raising kids and, and it's kind of funny cause you know, it's the hustle and bustle. It's, you know, yelling at this kid to put his shoes on and this one's still <laughs> trying to find their jacket, just trying to get out of the house. It's crazy. And especially three boys, it's a constant wrestling match and it's just noise. There's just noise all the time. And <laughs> they like to sing. They'll just bust out into songs. I mean, it's awesome during Christmas time that all these Christmas carols and the three-year-old starts it and, you know, eight and 11 year old get on board. And so it's trying to also just calm yourself and enjoy the moments and accept some of the chaos. Cause I was actually talking with my wife, Marie the other night. And I'm like, do you know how quiet it will be when the boys are raised and out of the house? I'm like, and do you know how clean our house will be? And, and just like kind of realizing that this will come to an end at some point. And so even when you're on the journey and it feels hard and hectic and chaotic to just let yourself go and live the moments. And back to the best classroom at Linfield football, you always have control of your attitude, right? And so at any moment, and so if your attitude is more of, oh my gosh, this is just annoying, or this is that, it's just trying to step back and say, hey, this isn't forever. And what what do I want to enjoy right now? I think that's been part of it is just, you know, when things are busy, hectic, even in business organization, you feel like you might be treading water take a moment, take a breath and just say, Hey, what's, what's going well. And how's my attitude and just enjoy parts of that journey. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you listen to incredible leaders. You and I have an affinity for Jocko. He yes. talks about kind of a, a psychological tool known as reframing, right? And that's really what we're talking about is reframing things that, that at face value might be one thing, but viewed from a different perspective is a different thing. You know, knowing that in 12 years, you're going to miss the noise helps reframe today's noise, right? Mm -hmm. Knowing that in, in 10 years, today's adversity creates skill sets and insight and knowledge organizationally and across your team that will be a competitive moat tomorrow. That's reframing kind of the adversity that we inevitably are going to experience. You know, Marcus Aurelius reminds us that uh, the obstacle is the way, right? So we're all trying to carve our own competitive moats. And I guess that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you here as we kind of put a bow on 2020. This will publish here at the end of the year. 
the one thing that we know for certain about 2021 is the certainty of uncertainty, right? That's the only thing certain about the future is, is uncertainty. And so just how much power there is in going through a planning process, because it creates some level of clarity, creates timelines, it creates priorities. And as an organization, we would welcome the conversation of helping you think about those planning insights and being a planning partner as you go into 2021 and beyond, because the certainty of uncertainty can be clarified by having a good plan that's looked at across a variety of different disciplines and, and helps you navigate with the level of objectiveness, all the various competing priorities that exist when you're a business owner or a real estate investor. So uh, Ryan, thanks for taking the time to share. Thanks for getting naked and excited for what's in store here at DeLap. And thanks for all the leadership. Thank you, Jared.